All right, let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we're wrapping up our Advent series as this is the last Sunday of Advent. Advent meaning arrival. Advent is the season that focuses on the arrival of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the incarnation and the salvation that comes with it. Today we'll be looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. How many send out Christmas cards? How many? I didn't get very many. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. I don't keep track. So, uh, it's like busted. I didn't get it. Uh, so, like Christmas cards, like less and less people seem to do it. I feel like used to be everybody used to do it. Um, but I, a lot of the Christmas cards from Christians in particular, I remember there was a time when there was a refrain that was used a lot, Jesus is the reason for the season. You see that? Jesus is the... And you go to Christian stores, and that'll be like on the bags, Jesus is the reason for the season. And it's sort of like that phrase, it's true, by the way, that phrase, though, actually sort of, uh, it reveals a belief that a lot of Christians have, that most Christians have, maybe that all Christians have, and that is that truth is more truthy if it rhymes. Okay, so if you could just, if you just make it rhyme, it's even better. It's even more truer. And I don't know why we think this, but it seems to be true. And I was thinking of all kinds of examples. And then I started looking it up. I went down the rabbit hole. All right. I just, I found this. This is not going to feel good. Um, this is from a website that offers uh, help to churches in need. Good. They want to reach more people. That's great. I'm not making fun of the website. I am making fun of this post. So they have like, here's ways to help and things to be organized. And they offer a bunch of trendy church slogans for 2024. So a lot of churches, they want to have a particular emphasis or vision. Like here are some trendy church slogans for 2024. I'm not going to read them all. We would be here a while. Um, but here they are. Faithful and more in 2024. Embrace God's door in 2024. Let love outpour in 2024. Shine and explore in 2024. Grace to adore in 2024. Rise and restore. In I mean, it's like really aggravating. It's just, it's, and maybe I'm just cranky. I certainly am. I'm a cranky person. I don't like this sort of a thing. I find it annoying. In fact, I feel like it's sort of, I don't know, feels weird. By the way, the paragraph that introduces the list, the list goes on. The paragraph that introduces the list rhymes. The paragraph rhymes. Welcome to the vibrant world of rhymes where faith and inspiration chime. Like, it's like, oh my goodness. Like it, it puts me in a mood. Rhymes are good. Songs are good. I love songs. I love poetry. It's all great. But, you know, those sort of things, they feel, I don't know, sometimes that stuff feels like it raises more questions than provides answers. Um, I remember the, it's bumper sticker theology. And, and in general, I don't really like the Christian bumper sticker thing. Not judging you. If you do that, that's fine. I just don't do it because I don't like it. Because if I were to put a bumper sticker on my car, it would be about like a metal band or something, and I don't want to relegate Jesus to the level of metal bands. I don't think that works. But whatever. And it, like, but there, was a, there was a bumper sticker that I had on my car when I was a young Christian. Uh, it said, God is awesome. And another said, Jesus is the answer. I saw that one a lot. Jesus is the answer. And I felt like that was like, that's the, that's the one. That's the one that tells everybody that Jesus is the answer. And I want us to consider that, actually, as we're looking through this passage of Scripture because with a statement like that, Jesus is the answer, it's sort, of, it's sort of inviting you to ask, well, what's the question, right, if Jesus is, is the answer? And I, and I believe that sometimes bumper stickers or statements like that, because Christians, we will use that sort of phraseology sometimes pretty quickly. That sort of statement, Jesus is the answer, can sound reductionistic and 
it can sound unsympathetic. Because a lot of people are going through a lot of stuff. And people are going through a nightmare on earth. And for us to come along, you know, full of the spirit, joy of the Lord, you know, we just got out of church and we're telling them, hey man, Jesus is the answer. And they're saying, I'm being evicted from, is Jesus the answer to my eviction? Is Jesus going to solve that problem? Is that what you're saying? Is Jesus the answer to every question I have, to every problem I have? Is Jesus going to rescue me from my financial trouble? Well, you've been walking with Jesus long enough, you know the answer to that. Maybe not. Well, Jesus, Jesus is the answer. So is Jesus the answer to the problem of my sick family member who is about to die? Is Jesus the answer to all of my marriage trouble? Is Jesus the answer to my loss, to my affliction, to my suffering? And those are fair questions, and we shouldn't just assume that the phrase, Jesus is the answer, is enough. But I don't want us to give up on that phrase either. So here's the question. Usually I provide a sermon summary for us to hold on to that summarizes the, the entirety of the message, but today it's just a question. I want you to hold on to this. I want you to think about this as we're going through our passage. The question is, is Jesus really the answer? Is Jesus really the answer? How is, the, is, is he the answer? So to, to get there, we're, we're looking at, at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. You know what it's called? Theologians and scholars called the prologue. They call it the prologue. We don't have a, a traditional birth narrative here like you do in, uh, in, in, in Matthew's gospel or in Luke's gospel because John is like the alternative band in the rock bands of the gospels, okay? Because he just does things differently. He does, he's like, oh, you all do it that way? No, I don't think so. I'm gonna, I'm gonna flip things around and, and do it like this. I wanna do it a completely different way. And so what he does is he, he skips the birth narrative, but he doesn't skip the coming of Christ into the world. In fact, what he does is he gives us this most glorious, most beautiful, most exalted depiction of who Jesus is in his prologue, right? So what we're gonna do is uh, we're gonna divide this into two basic parts. They're not even gonna be even parts, but I want us to see it like this, all right? In the first half, verses one through eight, roughly, uh, God's word is given, okay? One through eight, God's word is given. And then nine in the following uh, is God's word must be received. All right? So first, God's word is given. What are we talking about? Well, you'll see what I mean by word in verses one and two. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That word, word, uh, is the Greek word logos. And it's one of the more well-known Greek words, nouns, that many Christians who don't speak Greek know because it is used so um, often and it is explained often and it's because it is referring to Jesus Christ. But it's a, it's a strange one to use, right? So it feels strange, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. The word was a popular word, right? It would be a little confusing. The word, word was a popular word. It was a buzzword. It was the word that everybody in the first century uh, was using for their own sort of ends, their own philosophies, their own ideologies. All kinds of philosophical traditions would grab onto it, right? The Stoics used it. They believed it was like this, this, this structural principle uh, that, that kind of holds all of reality together, this, this rational principle. Or you have 
Uh, the, the, that was the Stokes. But you, you have others like um, mm, the Gnostics. The Gnostics, and the Gnostics had, had a developing, evolving belief system where they essentially believed that there's a secret knowledge that you can obtain, and if you obtain this secret knowledge, that's your, that's your doorway to enlightenment, evolution, glory, or some kind of salvation. And so for them, it seems like this concept of logos, or word, was, was a part of that. Uh, Philo was a Jewish philosopher, and I couldn't understand what he meant when he would talk about the logos. It didn't make sense to me. So I read people that are smart, and uh, they said it, he uses it in so many different ways, it's hard to make sense of what he means by it. But he used it a lot, many, many times, over and over again. And then in Greek, of course, the word logos, it means word, like an actual word, or it means message, right? Like a, that a preacher might offer or a prophet might make. And so what a lot of scholars and preachers do is they, as they try to look at all of these cultural usages, usages of the term lagos, and they go, okay, so John, right, alternative band John, he's going to try something different. He's going he's to talk about Jesus in a way that is different from everybody else, and so he's, gonna, he's going to tie it to some of these popular philosophical ideas. I do not believe that that's what John is doing here. Um, I think he knows that it is used in all of these different ways in many other non-Christian contexts, but he is not using it in light of what they do with it. He is using it in light of what the Old Testament does with it. He's, he's pulling on his understanding of the history of redemption and what God's word is, meant, and did. So, Where's the first place we hear anything about God's word? Well, in essence, it would be in Genesis, right? Genesis 1 and 2. How did God create the heavens and the earth? He spoke his word. He spoke it into existence. He created all things in six days, yes, but he didn't have to work it out with his muscles. He didn't have dirt under his nails. He spoke it into existence, and it was. In fact, in Psalm 33, verse 6, it says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. So God spoke. There you go, word. Word relates to God's creative work. He spoke, and it became reality. But when you look at Isaiah, and you look at Jeremiah, and, and the prophets, what does it oftentimes say? It says, the word of the Lord came to the prophet, right? So it says to Isaiah, like, oh, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah or to Jeremiah. Just go to Jeremiah 1 like verse 4, and the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So the prophets were the mouthpieces of God, and God, the word of the Lord would come to them, right? God would essentially speak to them, and then they would speak God's word to his people, sometimes to even foreign nations. God's word, even when relayed through prophets, his word amounted to either judgment or salvation, so the word of God, right, the word of God was sometimes connected directly to judgment. It wasn't always a good thing. Uh, for example, Psalm 29, verse 3. Here we have a picture of judgment connected to the voice of God, to his word. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth with flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. God speaks and it rattles creation with his judgment. 
There will be an accounting. So that's one picture when God speaks his word, but his word is also associated with redemption, salvation, and rescue. In Psalm 107, verse 20, it says, he sent out his word and healed them. He delivered them from their destruction. When, when John starts talking about the Logos, he has in mind, and we know this, is no spoiler, we know the end of the story, the Logos is Jesus, okay? He's talking about the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. But when he starts to talk about the Logos, he has in mind all of this background material. The Word of God represents God represents his activity, right? It's his word. It's what he speaks. It's what he means. It's his revelation, right, of himself and, and, and his work. So here, the word of God, John says, was in the beginning. The word of God was in the beginning. It was with God, and the word was God. So John says at, on the front end here, he's introducing this idea, and he says the word, he's essentially saying, right, the word is God. But he doesn't just say that. He says, well, in the beginning, the word was, right? In the beginning was the word. So the, in the beginning, that makes us think of Genesis, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he says, in the beginning was the word. The word has always existed. Whatever the word is, right, if you're reading this for the first time, whatever the word is, it always was, even in the beginning at the point of creation, it was already there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. To say that the Word was with God here means that whatever the Word is, it has communion with God, with God the Father, that there is this relationship, this eternally existing communion happening between the Word and God, the closest possible relationships. And in fact, Jesus speaks to this in like John 17. It's his high priestly prayer. He actually refers back to this kind of communion. In his high priestly prayer, uh, early on, he's, he says this. It's in verse five. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's one of the most profound and deep statements that, that Jesus makes, right? And it's in a prayer because he's saying, like, listen, before the, the, the world existed, I was with you in glory. This kind of eternal peace, communion, and, and fellowship, and satisfaction, and glory, it was, all, it was all there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's a distinction being made here in some way, but there's also sameness. The Word is God, and yet the Word is somehow with God. And we know we're not talking about a principle or an idea or a force because of, in verse 2, what does it say? He was in the beginning with God. He, the person, the Word, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, eternally existing in perfect harmony with Father and Holy Spirit. The Word is God. That's the first thing we see here. And then it's even clarified even more. The Word is Creator. Look at verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. 
So there is nothing that exists, nothing that we can see or measure, and all the things that we cannot see and all the things that we do not know that are true and do exist only exist because Jesus said so, because the word made it so. Jesus says, it will be, and it is. So all things exist because of Christ. It was all made through him, and nothing was made without him. He is the creator, which means, in essence, the word, whatever the word is, right? If you don't know, whatever the word is, he is the one through whom all things have been made, and so all things are somehow organically connected to him. We are responsible to him with whether we understand him, like him, believe in him or not. It all belongs to him. In fact, we read about this in Colossians. We read this earlier in our worship service, but I'll just read one verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 16 of Colossians. For by him, speaking about Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. It all exists, everything, including you and me, exists for his pleasure. The word is creator. And the word we see in verses 4 and 5 gives life. The word gives life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. To say that the word was the one in whom life is found. You could make the argument that he's speaking about physical life, like just human life or or natural life. I think it would be true to say that, but I don't think that's what John's point is. Because especially in John's gospel, when you see Jesus talking about life, it's spiritual life. The kind of life that he's talking about is a salvific, a saving life, a new life. Eternal life, Jesus calls it, right? Eternal life. He calls it abundant life. And in John 14, 6, do you remember what Jesus said about himself? I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the life, the life. So yeah, I think we're talking here that in him is salvation. It was in him, right? And it still is. We'll see that. Which means that salvation has been coming from the word since the beginning. Anybody who has ever been redeemed, saved, forgiven, reconciled to God, it has always been through the word of God. This being, this person whom we know to be Jesus of Nazareth. And this life is called the light of men, right? It is, it, it, what is light? Light uh, gives sight, it gives understanding. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a symbol for wisdom. And, and so this light of men, this wisdom, this salvation that is spread to all who believe cannot be overtaken by the darkness in the world. The darkness still exists, right? But it is not overtaken by it. And what does Jesus say in John 8? 12, he says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John is brilliant. (laughs) John is brilliant in putting together this epic, beautiful, exalted picture of Jesus without a traditional birth narrative. The word gives life, and the word became flesh, to put a very fine point on it. We're going to jump all the way down to verse 14, still in the prologue here. 
It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John finally lets everybody in on their first reading. If you haven't figured it out yet, I'm talking about Jesus, right? He became flesh. The word, the eternal word, the eternal Son of God took on human flesh, a human nature. He became truly human while remaining truly God. And yes, there's mystery there, and we are filled with ignorance in our attempt to try to comprehend all of it. But here we have it. This is the incarnation. This is the birth of Christ entering into human history. This is the arrival of the Son of God, Advent, right? This is an epic picture. It's supposed to be big. See, this is, I, love, I love this, right? Because it is easier for us to sentimentalize and sanitize those traditional birth passages in Matthew and Luke. It's easier for us to sort of defang them, make them sort of cute. Ain't nothing cute about Christmas, right? Me in a Santa outfit, that's cute. But nothing cute about Christmas. The birth of Christ is not cute. It's glorious. It's it's dumbfounding, it's magnificent, it's confounding. It feels wrong in some way that, that, that God would become man, that the one who owns everything is born into poverty, that he would live among filthy, dirty, rebellious people who wouldn't even receive him, die for them and rise from the dead, all to obtain salvation for people who, who never really wanted it for the right reasons until God began to work in their hearts. Christmas isn't sentimental. I mean, Christmas can be sentimental. I like all that stuff. But not this, not the birth of Christ. See, John goes at it from a different way. You can't make this cute. You can't turn this into a precious moments figurine. This, this is an exalted, glorious picture. The baby who was born was God. Holding all of the mysteries of the universe in his mind. The word became flesh. Salvation arrived. And then we also see in verses 6 through 8 that the word was witnessed, right? We read about John the Baptist here. Uh, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And then later on, uh, it says, verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So John comes as a witness, right? To bear witness to the arrival, the advent of the Son of God, right? So and not only, it's not just John. I mean, John is the one. And John, if you don't know the story, John is also rather alternative, okay? Uh, John was a, was a prophet that sort of like lived on the margins in a lot of senses. I mean, he ate locusts and wild honey. He wore strange clothing. But it wasn't to attract attention to himself as much as it was to attract attention to his message, right? Because he was very clear. It's not about me. I don't want to be, I don't care. I just, I want to point people to Jesus. I want to call people to repent of their sins and to believe in the Lamb of God who has come to take away sin, we got John the Baptist acting, acting as witness, and then all the apostles. This John, different John, this John is another witness. That's why he writes, and we all as Christians today bear witness to this same word. So, 
God's word is given. Here we have it, right? The word of God is given, and it is given in the birth, in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But God's word must be received. It must be received. And not everybody receives it. Most people don't receive it. Even in the day, most people didn't receive it when they could see it with their eyes, when they could be touched. Most people didn't. Many people rejected him. Look at verses 9 through 11. The true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So he comes to his creation and extends hands of redemption, and people slap them away. They don't recognize him. They, they, they can't make sense of him because it, this is... How is this a savior? He comes with humility. He comes with meekness. He comes with love. He's challenging so many of their preconceived ideas. I don't recognize this, this savior. And so they didn't receive him, but others did. Others did receive him. Look at verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who received him, he came to be received, to be embraced, to be believed, to be accepted as the very word of God. And those who received him became something that they were not before. They became children of God. Before that, they were not children of God. You know what Paul calls them? Children of wrath. I know we all, well, we don't all love babies. Some of you don't, don't like babies. Uh, most of us like babies. And when you think of babies and you think of little kids, you think, oh, they're so cute. They're, oh, they're all God's children. And what we mean by that is like, well, you know what? They, these all belong to God, right? Like, so in that sense, yes, great. Everybody is made in the image of God. And the little ones, right, those relatively innocent ones, um, like, yes, we can recognize them as they belong to God, but they are not God's children until they receive Christ. No one is God's child until they receive Christ. And in that moment, we see here, and we see in Paul's writings as well, that God adopts us into his family so that man and woman become brother and sister in the kingdom. And so we are all received as God's children. This is an immense blessing. It is not like, it is not just because you have a lot of kids doesn't mean they're all loved, okay? Doesn't mean it doesn't mean you want to live there like, like 19 kids and counting or whatever that thing was. Nobody wanted to live in that house, right? Nobody wants to live there. Now we know nobody wants to live in that house. That place was scary and weird. And we think like, oh, well, look at all these kids. It'll be so great because it's going to be hard. It's going to have its own challenges because parents are finite and fallen, but God is not. He is infinite and perfect and holy, is perfectly loving and attentive to his kids. He knows what makes us and what breaks us, what we need, and he supplies all that we need in the right time. He never loses focus. He never loses track. He always has his eye on us. He is always there to welcome us into his presence, into his lap. He is the perfect father who never fails. That's what we get in part when we receive the word when we receive Jesus. Some who received him, they become the children of God and they receive the grace of God. Verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. 
See, it's not just like, okay, Jesus has come, and, and, and now uh, we've been adopted into God's family, and we're going to heaven. It's more than that. It's, we have the, the forgiveness of sins. We, we have communion with God and, and, and a reoriented mind and heart. We, we are becoming the people. In fact, that, just hang on to that. Hang on to the grace upon grace that we receive. I want to I come back to it and give it just a little bit of time here at the very end. Is Jesus really the answer? Right, that's the bumper sticker. Jesus is the answer. Is Jesus really the answer? Well, it's yes and no. It's mostly yes. Yes and no. Is, is Jesus is not the answer to every conceivable question you could ask. Jesus is not the answer to any math problem. Unless the math problem is who invented math, I guess. I don't think you could say Jesus, but it's like... Uh. Je- Jesus is not the answer to every particular question or problem that you can come up with or experience in your life but Jesus is the answer to life's most pressing questions, to the deepest questions. Jesus is the solution to our greatest problems and our greatest needs. Like, am I loved? Do you you know what it's like to ask that question for real? Some of you don't, because, and that's great, praise God, because you've been in context where families where you know you're loved, and you've been in relationships where you know you're loved. It's been clear. Not perfect, of course. Never perfect. But some of you find yourself in a place like, am I loved? Like, is love ever going to be something for me? That is a desperately painful place to live. Am I loved? Jesus is the answer. You are loved. You were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the earth. In love, God predestined you to adoption as sons. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God demonstrates his love for you and that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Yes, you are loved and perfectly loved with a love that will never be broken, will never fade away. Is there hope? Is there hope? And it depends on the question, right? Is there hope that your grade's gonna improve? Yeah, if you work hard. Well, I wouldn't just hail Mary, like throw it up to Jesus and hope he fixes your problems. But is there hope for me in my deteriorating scholastic endeavor? There is hope for you, yes. There is hope for our hearts, hope for our minds, that we have hope, the hope of becoming the people that we're supposed to be, right? Like, is there change? Is there purpose? It all relates to this hope idea. Like, is there purpose in life? Do I have purpose? Yes, and you don't have to invent it. You don't have to create it out of whole cloth. You do have a purpose, and it is to live life wherever you are for the glory and pleasure of God, and in that you will find pleasure. Is there forgiveness? Is there freedom from the guilt that I feel for the things that I have done? There is. There is for everybody. There is real pardon, like real cleansing. When people won't forgive you for the things that you've done, and maybe you can understand why, God forgives through Jesus Christ. So yeah, you can change. There is, can, can, I, can I become something better? You can. And I'm not talking about turning over a new leaf. I'm not talking about kicking a bad habit. Those are good things. Do that. Turn over a new leaf, kick bad habits, start good new ones, okay? 
you can change. You can actually change. Your heart, your mind, your character, your being will be transformed. It's one of the gifts that God gives us, grace upon grace. He gives us, gives us this gift. We call it sanctification, right? Scripture refers to it as sanctification, the ongoing progressive transformation of the human soul into the image of Christ where the image of God is being restored. Like we become the very people God has designed us to be. We all know what it's like to not be what we're supposed to be, but we oftentimes miss that what it really is at bottom is it is the marking and the marring of sin on the human nature in our lives. And because the word of God has come to save and to sanctify, we have hope of real change. Yes, Jesus is the answer. He just might not be the answer to the question that you're asking. Maybe, maybe some of us need to be asking bigger and better questions. I would never want to insult somebody who's not a believer by, by trivializing their needs or their afflictions. I don't think that's helpful. It's not fair to them. But I do want everyone here to know that Jesus really is the answer to our greatest needs and our greatest problems. And in all of those areas where there is no math that winds up where you know, my problem and this problem can only be solved uh, by Jesus himself, like sometimes... There is no solution. Sometimes the cancer takes you. Sometimes you just fall and fail really hard and there, you can't put the pieces back together. But there is hope. There are answers. There is a solution in Jesus for your soul, even in the midst of those unique circumstances. So this Christmas... Tomorrow and even tonight should be about the hope, the answer, the solution, the grace that we have in the Word of God, who is the Son of God, who is Christ the Lord for all who believe. I want to encourage you look to Jesus. Identify your most pressing, true need, the need of your soul. It's going to come down to something like forgiveness. That's one of them. Maybe I think it's the biggest. Cleansing, a clear conscience, purpose, transformation. And Christ offers his grace, not just to help you in your time of need, but to deliver you from despair. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we trust that you are more than able to meet all of our needs and to actually surpass our expectations. We don't deserve your help, Lord, but we ask for it because you are our Father. And we know that you love us not because we deserve it, but because you are good. Lord, help us to recognize our sin and our failure. Help us to, help us to recognize our ongoing need for you so that we cherish the child who was born, who lived, died, and rose again. In Jesus' name, amen.